Welcome to Women on the Line, a community radio national women's current affairs program produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Emma Hart. First rainfall and first flush down the river after a major flood should be given to the river first before it's given to anybody else. Women on the Line acknowledges that this program is produced and presented on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations and that their sovereignty was never ceded. We acknowledge their elders past, present and becoming, as well as the traditional owners of the land on which you're hearing us from. This week on the program, we'll be talking about floods and fires. We'll hear excerpts from a recent interview by 3CR Community Radio Tuesday Hometime presenter Jan Bartlett, who spoke with Fiona York for news from East Gippsland after the devastating fires. First, though, we speak with Bev Smiles, president of the Inland Rivers Network based in New South Wales, about the recent decision by the New South Wales government to put in place a three-day exemption to an embargo on floodplain harvesting, allowing irrigators to capture water that could otherwise have flowed into the Darling River. I'm Bev Smiles. I'm president of the Inland Rivers Network based in New South Wales. Thanks for joining us on the program, Bev. For our listeners, what is floodplain harvesting and how is it currently impacting the Darling River in northwestern New South Wales? What happens when we get uh, a, a fair bit of rain, which is thankfully starting to happen uh, in uh, the inland. Uh, The rain that falls on the the flat parts of our river systems, which are called the floodplains, it runs off towards the river. And also, if the rivers receive enough water themselves, they actually burst over the banks of the river and and then have overland flows uh, across this floodplain area. So... The water can come in either direction. It can, can run across the floodplain into the river or come out of the river and flood across the floodplain. And what's happened over a period of time, particularly the last 30 years, uh, people that are, are farming and growing crops on the floodplain areas, and they're, they're mainly at, towards the uh, lower end of our large river systems. So in New South Wales, inland New South Wales, and particularly in the northwest, we have the large river systems like the Gwaida River, the Namoi River, and the Macquarie River, and they all feed into the Darling River. So they're all tributaries of the Darling River system. And, and towards the end of each one of those big rivers are these big flat areas that are the floodplains. And so over, over this 30-year period, people have constructed uh, banks, uh, channels and large storages on their properties uh, for storing uh, water to use for irrigation. So not only do they pump out of the rivers, they've got licences to pump out of the rivers into these storages, they've got licences to pump out of the groundwater to put water in these storages. A lot of them also have uh, structures across the floodplain that directs these flood flows into their water storages. And at the moment, none of that is licensed. So it's free water uh, for the irrigation industry on those big floodplains. 
So as we know, we've had a very serious drought here in New South Wales for the last couple of years. And this very first good rainfall in some areas is the first real flow of water heading towards the Darling, which we know has been you know, seriously impacted uh, by what's been going on upstream, but also the severity of the drought. And all of this first flush flow really should be allowed to run through the system and get into the Darling run down the whole length and, and hit the Murray at the bottom end. That That is what we were hoping would happen with this first good rainfall. And so my understanding is that uh, there is currently actually an embargo on floodplain harvesting in New South Wales because of the drought, but um, that has recently been lifted for a, th- a, th- a three-day suspension of the embargo um, to allow farmers to to do this floodplain harvesting that's right. We're very disappointed by this. We, we were quite excited last Friday when, when we heard that the New South Wales government had for the very first time ever uh, restricted uh, the extraction of water off the floodplain into these big private storages. Uh, but something happened over the weekend, Emma. Uh, lots of lobbying from the very powerful irrigation lobby in the northwest and uh, suddenly on Monday the uh, restriction and the embargo for taking this very important um, overland flows was lifted in in a number of key areas and again the, some of the river systems I mentioned the, the Gwida River and the Namoi River are where there's a large volume of floodplain harvesting occurs and they are the two systems where the government, we believe, under political pressure, uh, lifted the embargo so that uh, those landholders, those um, irrigators could siphon off these important flows. So instead of them heading down to help save the Darling, where all those fish have been killed and where we've had communities, whole towns with no water supply for months, if not years, those people have been uh, given the right to siphon off that water um, with this embargo being lifted for three days. And the important aspect is over those three days possibly is, you know, the best flows uh, coming from the rainfall that we've had um, so th- this embargo is really bad timing uh, for the Darling River and and we believe politically motivated. I wanted to mention that. So New South Wales Water Minister Melinda Pavey has said that the suspensions are only temporary and that restrictions are expected to be put back in place by Friday. But as you've just said, that will probably coincide with the best water being gone. Is, is that correct? Well, yep, the best flows and... On the areas where there is the most intensive um, infrastructure for harvesting those flows and siphoning them off into private storage, mm. um, and 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 those those irrigators in that part of the state are very powerful as far as influencing uh, the national party, and uh, what unfortunately occurs in New South Wales is that the 
water portfolio is always seems to be given to the National Party when we have a coalition government in power and lots of community groups have really been highlighting the problem with that and the conflict of interest that a National Party water minister has when some of their key donors to the party are these big irrigation concerns. Women on the line. And just to put it in context here, some of the impact of this on the river, I understand that harvesting like this can potentially result in less than 40% of the rainfall reaching the rivers. Does that sound like a good ballpark figure to you? Or? Uh, that, well, that could be right. Um, it would depend entirely on, you know, what the runoff looks like, um, you know, how much rainfall there's been. Um, and, and, you know, whether, whether the storage is already full. Mm. Um, if that's the case, then, you know, the water will pass through. Um, so there's a whole range of uh, variables um, in regard to how much water can get through to the system. But, th- yeah, that 40% is probably a calculation over a long-term annual average, uh, which is what a lot of water management is based on. Uh, But really, critically for... I mean, the drought really hasn't yet broken in western New South Wales, so while some areas have got this good initial bit of rainfall, it's not um, even right across the inland. And a lot of the big um, dams on these rivers, the big dams actually haven't received um, big inflows, so it's a matter of where the rainfall has happened. Uh, and, you know, it was really, really important for this first flush flow to get into the Darling River and, and down past Burke, down to the, the communities of Wilcannia and Menindi and, and topping up the Menindi Lakes and enough water to get into the Darling, which is really parched, um, and, and meet up with the, the Murray. That, that's what really needed to happen out of this first flow of water and what's occurred is that the uh, New South Wales government has basically given it to their mates. We were speaking earlier about how floodplain harvesting is fairly unregulated in New South Wales. I mean, what role do bodies like the Natural Resources Access Regulator have in this kind of situation? Well, we're in the middle of the development of uh, an assessment of the structures working out the volumes of, of what is harvested and and handing out licences so that the whole thing is regulated. Um, so um, the New South Wales government's pushed back on the timing of that. So that project is supposed to be completed by 2021. Um, and it's, it's an issue the community has raised consistently for many years. The policies been uh, around since 2008 uh, with various amendments have occurred over the period of time with changes of government and we still haven't seen the formal regulation of this really important water water extraction. Uh, so NRA, um, the Natural Resources Access Regulator, will be is supposed to be watching very closely what is going on at the moment with an embargo in place and with the embargo lifted for three days and there's a push 
for some transparency around the volume of water that actually is captured. So we've got a sense of, you know, what percentage of the water actually went into private hands. And there might be some, you know, possibility to negotiate that that water be replaced back into the system in some way. We don't know yet. Uh, until we get some results uh, of what's happened. And and to be quite honest, the best case scenario would be this weather that we're getting down from the north and from the cyclones that are both, you know, east and western cyclones we've had, um, that we'll actually continue to get good rainfall um, in the western part of the state and then the problem won't be as great as it is currently. For some context as well, I understand the country in the northwest of New South Wales is pretty flat um, and it's, it doesn't take a lot to divert the water. Is that one of the contributing factors here? Well, that's right. That's what the floodplains are. They're really very big, flat plains country. So you don't need much of a bank or even, you know, roads that are built up a bit so that they don't get flooded all the time, they actually can cause water to be to be diverted um, and, and impact on the flow of water across that really, really flat country. Um, so the whole of Western New South, once you get out, out to the real west, it's all very, very flat. There's hardly any fall in that um, landscape, um, which is one reason why it does flood, because... We get the higher rainfalls up in the, the, the Great Dividing Range, which is closer to the east coast, um, and when that rainfall sort of hits the western edge, that's when these um, westerly flowing inland rivers really start to, to, to flow, and, and by the time you get down to what is called a floodplain, they are called floodplains because that's where the regular floods have always occurred, so they've got really good soil, um, but it does not take much of a bank or a channel um, to be constructed across um, that flat country for it to cause water to flow in a different direction. And you mentioned trying to measure the water that's been taken out. Uh, I mean, how would NRA even do something like that? Well, that's one of the other parts of the project is looking at how the once once the take is licensed, how that will be measured um, and monitored, and they're really now looking at we've we've got um, you know much more sophisticated technology now, um, so satellite imagery and um, various other um, you know drones. Like there's a whole there's a whole number of different more modern techniques. Uh, that are that are possible possible to be used. Uh, the issues now the cost of that, um, but from a community viewpoint, we believe that um, you know the industry's had a free kick of free water that's not been managed or regulated in any way for the past thirty years, and it's time now in the this century um, when we know that climate change is possibly going to give us bigger droughts but also might possibly give us bigger floods we can't tell um, that the the regulation and the measurement and management of that water from floods really needs to be done properly so you know New South Wales is a key part of 
water management um, in, in the most important river valley in Australia. And the more people that just keep sending the message, we want our rivers to be healthy, we want our, our townships, we want our recreational opportunities to be considered in the mix as well as the economic arguments that are given in favour of the irrigation industry. Because over the long term, the costs of an unhealthy river are huge. On community radio around Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. You just heard Bev Smiles from the Inland Rivers Network in New South Wales speaking about floodplain harvesting. Next, we'll hear 3CR Community Radio presenter Jan Bartlett speaking with Fiona York for news from East Gippsland after the fires. Fiona York travelled to the area of East Gippsland at the end of January. I asked her what she was confronted with on the way. Drove out to East Gippsland and stopped in at Sarsfield, which is just out of Bansdale. And two of my good friends who evacuated from Goongarra, they're wildlife carers, and they had three wallabies and a baby wombat that they had to take with them, and as well as all of their stuff. And so they evacuated on the day that the fire was to hit, or the day before, and drove down to Sarsfield, thinking that they'd be relatively safe there. And then, of course, Sarsfield itself was really badly hit by the fire. So they had to evacuate a second time into Bansdale with all of their animals. And so I went to to their place and stayed at their house, at um, Joe's mum's house, and the entirety of the town of Sarsfield, which is only a few k's out of Bansdale, was completely black. Her house was okay, but everything around it was black and every house on the other side of the street was burnt down and it was still really smoky. There's a swampy kind of bog area a couple of, maybe 500 metres from their house that was still on fire and plumes of really toxic smelling smoke was coming out and it was an absolute bedlam there. There was just EPA checking the, the air and there was CFA and there was, yeah, just constant people coming and going yeah, it was crazy. Could you go further east? Yes. So after I stayed there, I went up as far as Goongarra, which is about 70 k's north of Orbost, so another hour and a half or so past Sarsfield. And, yeah, it was pretty devastating. Yeah. Oh, it was terrible. It's, as soon as you hit the Bonang Road, um, which is the winding road, people probably know it, It's used to be closed canopy, beautiful forest all the way up. And it's just black from the moment you hit the Bonang, pretty much all the way to Goongra, apart from one little patch of green, which is around Sardine Creek. I cried all the way from Martins Creek up to Goongra. It was really sad. Is there a town there? In Martins Creek, there's a couple of people that live there and there's a couple of people that live at Sardine Creek. And I had supplies that had been donated by the Merboo North community in the back of my car. So I was stopping off at each of the places and dropping off food and petrol and face masks and things like that and water. And that was the first supplies that had come through since the fire hit in late December. Is there a town of Goongarra? Yes. Well, town in the loosest sense. It's got no shops. Um, it has a CFA shed, a phone box, um, and it used to have a school, but the school closed December last year due to lack of kids. And how did that area survive? The whole town was hit really badly. There's around 12 houses were lost. 
So that's quite a chunk of the town. Uh, about 20 people stayed to fight and defend their houses and um, lots of people evacuated as well. Um, the evacuation notices were given out by the police and the um, department on the 29th of December and some people chose to stay and defend and some people left. Most of the houses that were lost were absentee landholders. There was about four or five of people's actual residences that burnt down as well. So pretty devastating loss to the town. Yeah. So from what you've said, Fiona, it's not, you weren't a stranger in the area and we need to go back to 1993. Yeah. What took you to the area in 1993? Um, there was a forest festival on uh, at the end of no, it was, yeah, November 93 that was put on by Friends of the Earth and the Wilderness Society and the local environment group, Crowegg. And I went and visited that in 93 and then I went away, fi- finished travelling around and then came back in 94 and didn't leave, basically, stayed there. And the setting up of the the grassroots organisation, Gecko? Yeah. How did that happen? So those same three groups that did the festival decided that instead of leaving and just being this kind of blow-in city-based activist thing that they would set up as base in the heart of East Gippsland, which was Goongra, which allows you to then monitor the logging and, and we were very much into direct action and blockading. So we set up Gecko, or it wasn't me that set it up, I was there probably maybe just under a year after it got set up and then it became a base for activists to come and do direct action and do, yeah, forest monitoring and things like that. Talk about the surrounding area and the flora and the fauna. Yeah, East Gippsland is one of the most biodiverse places you can imagine. It has huge, big old trees, but it also has incredible biodiversity. It's one of the strongholds for rainforest in Victoria. I don't know if everyone knows that we actually do have proper rainforest like in Victoria that looks like the jungle and it's warm temperate and cool temperate rainforest and also a rare crossover. So there's heaps of endangered species, there's heaps of biodiversity, beautiful big tree ferns and there's two or three well there's two main rivers that run through Goongra and there's a whole bunch of little creeks as well so we were really lucky to have such a beautiful place and the Erinundra Plateau part of that was protected in the 80s but a lot of it was still being logged all the way through the 90s and through the 2000s as well so a lot of that old growth forest was getting smashed. Um, there still is old growth logging happening. The fires have obviously impacted on their logging at the moment, but there's still big old trees being felled um, up until very recently. How did you protest against that logging? Yeah, so we had we did direct action. Um, so we did blockading. Um, we would set up structures like tripods and we would lock onto bulldozers and we would set up tree sits and all that kind of stuff, blocking roads. Um, but we would also do monitoring of the forest and try to find endangered species because there's laws that protect them sometimes. Um, so we would find those species and then send off the data and try and get areas protected. We also did lots of lobbying of government, so writing to politicians. Um, we worked with city-based groups to try and do different campaigns around various areas or particular things that we were trying to protect. So whatever tool we could use, we would try to do it. And we also were really into working with the local community as much as we could, even though in the very beginning they really hated us. But <laughs> over time, we wore them down a little. Yeah, I think um, it's a bit hard to be greeny down in the oh, area, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty bad. It got a lot better. But yes, yeah, certainly in the early 90s, it was pretty rough. You did got refused service in Orbost all the time. Your kids got hassled at the school in Orbost. And, and yeah, we also had... And there's still definitely tension there. Um, but I think 
over time we did build up a bit of community. And we often wouldn't say where we were from because it wasn't a good idea to say you're a greenie in that area. And, yeah, there was some pretty famous incidences of violence against people as well. Well, over the 20 years or so that you were there, Mm. what do you believe you achieved? We protected Goolungook, some of it. Um, what do you pre- mean, some of it? Well, some of it was logged, yeah. unfortunately. Um, the heart of it was really logged in, ni- when, what year was it, This wasn't illegal logging, this was legal logging. Legal, but it turned out to be illegal. But, of course, by the time we got through the court system, that was gone. gone. But, yeah, that did turn out, because it was a heritage river, they shouldn't have been logging that area. And all of the scientists and the scientific reports were saying don't log it, but they don't pay any attention to science and they still don't. We also managed to protect a bunch of forests behind Goongra and more recently we had that announcement only a few months ago that all old growth logging is to cease. So little bits here and there, little parts of protections, a whole bunch of greater glider zones have been protected because of citizen science work that Gecko has done and yeah, I mean you try, you get your wins when you can and try and celebrate them, eh? Talk a bit more about the animals and the birds. Yeah. So there's some pretty awesome endangered species out there. Um, There's long-footed potteroos, greater gliders. There's tiger quolls or spot-tailed quolls. There's a whole bunch of owls. So there's powerful owls and sooty owls, um, which are also endangered. There's crayfish in the rivers that are also endangered. And there's a whole bunch of plant species as well. So just even common animals that that people maybe don't realise are rare because we see them so much there that we don't we sort of take them for granted. So there's heaps of wombats, there's platypus in the river, um, there's wallabies and kangaroos all over the place, black cockatoos. All of that stuff is just really common and you see it all the time. So you take it for granted. But actually, when you think about it globally or even in a statewide context, it's an amazing little oasis. As soon as you used to drive up the road, you'd be seeing wombats and wallabies and hearing the black cockies fly over and... Yeah. And of course, if they hadn't been logging, there would have been a lot more areas where you would have seen those. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. What do you believe is lost now? It's pretty devastating. I think there's very, going to be very hard to come back from this fire. So we don't know yet, really. Um, We need to, we've looked at the maps, it doesn't look great. And we now need to ground truth that we need to actually go into every gully and see if anything survived. But Martins Creek rainforest is toast. So that was the biggest stand of warm temperate rainforest in Victoria, incredibly biodiverse. And now it is just black sticks. Nothing's left. And yes, some of the eucalypt species will grow back. Some of the canucas will grow back. But we've lost that biodiversity. And it's a result of climate change but it's also a result of them logging and burning everything around it for 30 odd years to feed the Eden chip mill so without all of that edge effect of all of that logging up on Paradise Ridge Road and all around the back of Martins Creek and all around the back of Goongra that has exposed these rainforest gullies to catastrophic wildfire and now now we have to go in and we have to look at Quark and we have to look at Goolungook and we have to look at those icon areas, go in there and have a look and see what's left. It looks bad on the maps. Um, Erinundra Plateau is looking okay at the moment, but there's fire all around it. They're back-burning to protect <laughs> so-called certain plantation assets in New South Wales. So these things are threatening 
at the moment, the last stands of cool temperate rainforest, the mountain plum pine up on the plateau, Goonmet Rocks Road, all of these incredible, iconic, amazing areas. But having said that, there, I noticed when I was in Goongar a few weeks ago, there was a little gully just behind my place that was green, the only bit of green. So you never know, there might be some stuff that's okay. Thanks, Fiona. Thank you. And that was Fiona York, who's got 20 years more experience of living up in the area of East Gippsland, which now tragically is severely burnt. But they're fighting back and you can help. You can get onto the web pages either of Gecko, G-E-C-O, or Friends of the Earth, though, and find out what you can do to assist in supporting the people who are still there, the animals that are still there, and the animals we hope will come back once there is food for them. That was 3CR Community Radio Tuesday Hometime presenter Jan Bartlett speaking with Fiona York on the impact of the fires in East Gippsland. And that's all for Women on the Line today. Women on the Line is a community radio national women's current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. We greatly appreciate financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show, so send us an email to womenontheline at gmail.com or phone 3CR on 03 8377. If you'd like more information about today's program or to listen to the show again, you can find what you need on the Women on the Line website, 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. The theme music for Women on the Line is Slideshow at Free University by La Tigra. I'm Emma Hart. Hope you can tune in again next time.